Welcome to Radical Remembering with psychologist Dr. Narissa and Dr. Buki. This is a weekly conversation where we explore the ways we've internalized oppression and consider what it really means to be liberated. Each episode will leave you with intimate knowledge of the liberation process, sprinkle a little healing magic, and leave you with wisdom for your journey. What's up, y'all? Welcome back to Radical Remembering. We are so excited to be back here with y'all. Our conversation today is going to be about when did you start internalizing messages about race? So that's the piece we're going to lean into and start to unpack and explore. Um, we got stories for you. So let's let's get into it. Larissa, you want to you start? What, when did you start? Yeah. Well, it's, it's important. So stories come to mind for me, but it's important for us to realize that we're in a society where we're always internalizing messages that we're not always conscious of. So according to the research, we first become, I mean, in a context like this that is racially heterogeneous or racially diverse, we begin to think about or recognize differences between race at an earlier point in our development than, let's say, where, you know, countries where people of color are the majority or of the same background, racial background. And so as early as eight months old, babies can distinguish the differences between people of different races and pictures. What they notice is that it takes them a longer time to habituate. Like if, if we have an eight month old, we're showing the pictures of a white face, a black face, an Asian face, a whatever. When it's somebody of their same race, they look at it and they keep moving. When it's somebody of a different race, they look at it for a longer time, which signifies the fact that they haven't habituated to it. It, has, it is not typical for them or presented so they can distinguish the differences between, right? Then that continues. Around three to five years old, we begin to really think about race and ourself as a racialized being and other people as being of different races around the end or the later part of that around five-ish, especially when you start to enter schools and different things like that is when they're really downloading the template, right? These, the caste system of race in, you know, the, the whatever context that we're in. So in America, this racial hierarchy and they're fine, they're considering who they are within this caste system, right? And so the first time that I can remember thinking about race and mostly in, at home, I didn't have to think about it before I moved to Long Island, before um, kindergarten. I didn't think about it because I was in a place where it was predominantly black. But I remember being invited to this birthday party in kindergarten. And I remember they were all just like they were there were a bunch of white girls as me and this other black girl. And I remember that we were in a basement and they were just like running back and forth, screaming and yelling, you know, like, you know, having fun, right? <laughs> Being liberated, I guess, right? Having fun. And I remember feeling on the outside and there were some personality differences, right? So I was very shy and reserved. So I wasn't one who could jump right into that. I was like watching and, you know, finding my space. Culturally also that like kind of, I want to say unbridled, but it's not that that is a cultural uh, um, assessment of the behavior, but just being you know, wild and having not an emotional, you know, or loud or excitement. That's also not like culturally consonant from, you know, my ethnic background. And so those things played into it. But I remember thinking like, oh, they're white people. Right. And I'm not in because they all, I also realized in that time, because we all went to school together, but in that time, I realized that their mothers knew each other that they played together. So they had like this whole community. Granted, they lived on the white side of town and I lived on the black side of town. So some of that had everything to do with it. And, and we can look at how societies shape race and experience of race too, because if we live in a mixed neighborhood, maybe that wouldn't have been the case. But what I, what I started thinking is, it was, oh, it's because I'm black. 
You know what I mean? Like I didn't feel like I fit in. I didn't feel like they, I was as desired to play with like, you know, and I remember looking at the other black girl and she fit right in and they were like grabbing her hand and running and different things like that. And I was thinking at, at, as early as I was like, oh, she acts like them. So basically, so she's in the set, you know what I mean? And so, and, and, and feeling like incapable of acting like that, how, that's how I felt, you know? And then is when I really began to feel like I was on the outside and, and internalized race in those ways. And all the other experiences after that are still also related to like school context. I'm sure that there are so many other instances, but okay. So when I started, when, when honors classes, when they started to stratify in tracks in, in my school was like seventh grade, sixth, seventh grade. And I was in honors classes. What I noticed is that these classes were predominantly white, very few people of color, even smaller number of black people. And all my friends were not in honors classes. The people I was at the bus stop with and and lived in my community, they were not, they were black people, but they were not in these classes. Right. So again, I may not have consciously been internalizing this message, but that says something about who's smart, who's not smart kind of thing. Right. And then, uh, then, you know, another specific memory, I remember being in 12th grade in, I don't know, was it like AP chemistry or something like that? Some, some science class and the, the papers were being handed back. And I had like a, it was, it was supposedly like a hard test, but I had like a 98 or something like that. And the girl, there was two girls in front of me and they turned around and was like, what'd you get? Right. Mind you, these people never talked to me. We had been in the same classes for like five, six years straight. But they asked, what did I get? And I was like, oh, a 98. And then she turned around to everybody. What? Narissa got a 98. Like, you know, like, could you believe that? Oh, it's because I didn't study. I was I was, you know, I didn't do this. So it was shocking that Narissa and I knew it was it was me being a black person. Right. Narissa did better than me. Like, how could that be? It has to be because I didn't put my, you know what I mean? Like, she's not smarter than me. She's not. Mind you, the, the thing that was always ironic about that to me is like, we're in honors classes, right? You don't just walk up into honors classes. I have consistently gotten good grades enough to be in honors classes. So you shouldn't be shocked that I'm here. But similarly, I remember like even raising my hands and the teachers, like not thinking that I had the answers, not, not even calling on me, not even knowing my name, even though I was with them for a year. So all of those things I'm internalizing. And then now that I'm thinking about this, one more story I remember is that probably that same year or the year before, it was a day like when there was like a trip and this white guy was like pacing back and forth, right? So the irony about this story is that he wasn't even in all honors classes. This was like the only honors class that he was in, but he was pissed for whatever reason. And he was like, you know, this, you know, our, our, overall GPA for the school would be higher and we would be higher in ranking if there weren't so many black people in the school. Right. There were three black people in the room. I was like, what? Like, excuse me. Right. And so me, Trinidadian descent, there was two other Jamaican, Jamaican born, but had moved to America at a young age, people in the room. And I said, so I said, I was like, what, why would you say that? You got three black people right here and we're in honors classes. Right. And he was like, I'm not talking about you. So first of all, he totally dismissed us. I'm not talking about you. You're not black. And we were like, what? He was like, you're Caribbean is different. Right. And so I rejected that. Thankfully, I rejected that message that I was different from black and black Americans or whatever. But I also got a nice like litmus test of like he said what the system had already been saying. He clearly internalized from I from my 
from what I imagine is messages from his family, as well as these, you know, messages he's downloading from his, you know, the school environment and society at large. So those were, I'm sure that there were many incidents that I probably can't remember or that I wasn't conscious of internalizing, but those were critical moments that really spoke to me about my belonging in a context, about how smart, whether or not I was really smart or whether or not it was just a fluke that I was getting by or whether or not I was a token in the space kind of things. So those were, were some of the first times that I internalized like these negative messages about myself as a racialized being. Yeah, no, when I listen to you talk about this, Narissa, somebody who did not grow up in this country, folks who are watching, you might remember if you caught previous episodes, I grew up in Nigeria. It just makes me just, you know, we're both parents. And I don't know if this is the same for you is like, I'm just thinking about our kids, right? And just thinking about like their journey. And there's, you know, this is the piece that I, I feel like as a, as a person who grew up in Nigeria, there's a sadness that shows up in me because my children, especially my daughter. So I have, um, I'm in a queer interracial relationship for our listeners where I have, a, my kids are both multiracial kids, but my son is very white passing and my daughter is dark, is darker skin and closer to my complexion. I'll, no, like, well, um, my hope is that she'll be closer to my complexion at the end of the day. But it's like when, when I hear you, when I hear you, describing there's just a sadness in me that I just feel like there's a journey that she specifically will walk that I haven't walked you know and I don't know if you think about Nuritu and like you know but there's just a piece that like when you tell these stories oh there's just a sadness that shows up in me around this conversation just mm-hmm. so I just wanted to I just wanted to put space but name which is about your experiences that you had also thinking about our children and what they will also like walk, walk. Yeah. It's so important to prepare, right? So Black Americans are the only, when they study racial socialization, they're the only group because it's by necessity. I think that might, that might be changing since, since um, George Floyd, that people are socializing their children about race outside of the Black community. Well, Black American community, because it, it doesn't happen on the continent, nor does it happen in the Caribbean, but by necessity, we have to socialize our children in America about what it is to be Black. So preparation for bias. There are, diff- there are about four different kinds of racial socialization messages. But we, when speaking of our children, it happened to, to my son, right? So I remember when he was in kindergarten, the, the teacher called me and she was saying that he's having a problem learning and this, that, that, the other. And he was even crying. Five years old, he, was, he bust out crying one time we were driving down the street because he couldn't read the sign. The, the street sign and everybody else in his class could could read. He was vibrant, smart, outgoing, bold, all these things until school, right? And so when I when I tried to ask her, I was like, well, what makes you think that he has a problem learning? And so she said, well, I asked him what the weather was today. And he said it was hot. And I was like, it was. And he was like, no, she said, no, 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 that's an answer to temperature. I was like, that is so random. I said, my, I was in my doctoral program. I was like, I'm, I'm on my way to a doctorate. And, and I still would have said it didn't sound wrong to me, right? So that is really subjective and not appropriate for you to judge his intellect or his ability to learn from, right? So, yeah. So that's the beginning. That was the beginning of when I saw him change, right? And so today he's 16, going to be 17 in October. What I see in him today is, is a, a more, a less bolder, a less risk, less of a risk taker, less, 
you know, because of those earlier educational, because kindergarten and first grade were hard. After that, I took him out of that school system. I was driving him to Brooklyn every day to go to, from Queens, New York, to go to a charter school because I wanted him to have a different experience. I mean, that's still another story to go on, but I think that that's a fair consideration. Like, what will our children go through? You know what I mean? How, How are we prepared to mend that damage? What do we do to prevent it or for them to have different experiences altogether? Yeah, I know as, you know, as somebody who, who didn't grow up, you know, didn't grow up in this country, it's, it's just, I cannot explain, um, I think, you know, other listeners who maybe grew up in other African countries or uh, in the Caribbean, but places where like racially homogenous, I just feel like it's a difference. And I think the piece that like, I think we, I feel grateful for is my, especially because of the work that I do, just my clarity and my ability to support him through it and support them through it in terms of our, like having language, right? And being able to make space, being able to raise the topic with our kids and to be able to check in, you know? Um, so I feel equipped in that way, but there's just this, like, it's just, you know, this is a whole different, like, we got to have a whole different, like, pod, uh, episode around just parenting and but it's just a piece around like, like I, in some ways, you growing up in this country have some information viscerally, right, that I do not have that allows you to be able to, you know what I'm saying? So like, it's just a piece around this difference. And so it's just, I think, I think it's just us making, being able to make space and we got to be able to hold, hold that, you know, mm-hmm. and, and not get hopeless, right? Because at the end of the day, it's around like, what are the ways in which, what are the protective messages we are in fact sending our kids? And helping them feel rooted and helping them feel clear around who they are, who who our people are, right? I, I love the stories like Cynthia was telling in the episode, um, one of those past episodes is like when you're clear about who you who you come from, right? What your lineage is, like then like it's this piece around like <laughs> I, I can do anything. I can do literally anything regardless of what the world says I can and can't do. Thank you. So what's, what's your experience though? So I'd like to, you know, like when did you start internalizing messages about race? I do, I do, I do trainings around, around race, right? I always sing this song, Baba Black Sheep, have you any wool? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Three bags full. One for the master, one for the dame, one for the little boy that lives down the lane. And I sing that song because it's the song that when I was in the seventh grade, the boys in my school, this is in Nigeria, in Ibadan, in Nigeria, would sing when I would walk by. And what was always clear to me is that they were poking fun at me and they were poking fun at me because of like how dark my skin is. But what was not, what didn't make sense to me was that the people singing the songs exactly like me. Yeah. <laughs> I, I literally did not get it. I literally right. did not understand what was like. I just didn't. It just didn't. I didn't get it. And it wasn't until like maybe like in the last past, I would say five to seven years, that it actually clicked. And so this piece around, um, I think you know, growing up in Nigeria, and me and my cousin were having a conversation around this piece, and like about like in Nigeria, how much how much were we dealing with race as people? So the piece that like is really the piece that's clear to me now is like, you know, how again I talk about how global anti-blackness is and what my my young classmates were was is a piece about like the anti-blackness that's certainly like rooted in them, but it didn't make sense to me. So that was the, my first, like when I tell my real story around like my first messaging around race, I think that really was it. 
But in reality, it didn't have meaning for me, I think, until I got to this country. You know, I think there, I can't remember the specific stories, but I know that the two things that sort of always come to mind is pieces of like remembering. There's a story I have inside of me that's not fully fleshed out, but remembering when I first moved to this country in that first year, I was about 12 years old, and rejecting the notion of being Black. And that's a really sad story. Like, you know, that story is, is painful for me to like talk about. Because of like, I think whenever I see anti-blackness in me, it is always it's painful. It's painful, especially and especially as like a like as a like when I think about it for like as a small ch- as a as a young person. Um, when I think about like that little little version of and you know part of what I I talk about is this piece around like it's like I'm not I'm not actually clear. I th- I think I think it I think the root of of my not identifying as black when I first moved to this country or rejecting the notion that I that I'm black was because of, it felt like it erased my identity as a Yoruba person, as a Nigerian, right? Because of growing up in Nigeria, I think part of what we, we were, the piece that we own, right, were our ethnic identities as Yoruba people or national identity as Nigerian. And even African, like for a while, I'm like, don't put me in that, like, just don't call me African. Like, you got to name what kind of African I am, you know? So there's a piece around, like, so there's a piece around, like, remembering that, my struggle with owning my black identity and because it was never it was not an idea it was an identity that was like imposed on me moving to a racialized a country that like trades in like racial heritage that wasn't real for me in Nigeria right but then the other piece that I also remember the other other stories that I remember like my young ages is I remember walking in 7-Eleven and being at a 7-Eleven with like my friends my white friends and noticing that I was the only one who got followed around and notating that and you know I used to write poetry when I was was in ninth grade uh and so I remember writing poetry about racism so some things were happening for me and the others the other thing that I also remember being I think in the 10th grade or in the 11th grade and one of my white friends I you know it's, it's really interesting when you if you actually look at me when I was in in high school I had like my black friends and I had my white friends and I was one of those kids you know how when you think about the like uh, what's her name's book? Why are the black kids sitting together in cap? What's the name of that book? Beverly Tatum. Right. I was one of those kids, literally like lunch. Half of my time was spent at the black, at the table with my black friends. And then half of the t- time was spent at the table with like my white, like it was like literally like as this like African, this Nigerian person, like trying to like figure out like what race is doing in this country, like, you know, going back and forth. But I remember there was one time I was in the, in the locker room with my white friends. And I can't remember what the context of what we were talking about was, but my best friend at the time was making, she made some kind of comment where she was like, and she was trying to say something about me. And she was like, the only person, the only person, oh, I can't even remember. It's interesting. Like, this is how, like how our mind erases painful, painful details, you know, because I can remember the feeling, but I can't remember the content of what was said. But mm-hmm. she said something around the only person in here that's not, I don't think she said that's not white, but she, but there was an othering. There was an, uh, she, whatever she said, it was bring, it was about me as black relative to the three of them. And, and it, and it was a, it was a comment that other, and that felt like, I, cause I remember being mad at her. I remember being mad at her. We ended up having a conversation around that. And, but I don't remember the context, but my point is like, so there were all these, these are the small moments. The other piece that I think, you know, you and I were talking about earlier that I also wanted to just name too, is that also internally inside of my own home, 
right, was also dealing with like my own family's, their own struggle around race and their own, this, the devaluing, really anti-Blackness, right, that was like permeating in, inside of our home of like, I remember my, my mom, right, being clear about don't bring American boys, Black American boys into my home really was what she was saying. There's a word in Yoruba that we, that is used to refer to Black American people. Um, it's a derogatory word. And it's, it's like a word, like whenever you're becoming too Americanized, right? Th- that's a word that you're like, ah, you're turning into, and they use that word. So there's just been, it's just like all these messages. And, but I think the piece of, that I would name as like, as, is like this piece around like, not only the like internalizing messages around like blackness, but also this, that hierarchy that exists right, between Africans and Black American people or Caribbean people and, and, right, which is all related to, like, and when you, when you, if you go to the root of it, it's related to this piece around the different ways we reject each other, right? Mm-hmm. But it's just, it's just these, all of these ways that, like, we've been, like, all of these places that we get these messages around our Blackness and a devaluation of our Blackness. I can just, it's just, I mean, I think, like, you know, it's just, it's just that and it's, it's real. It is, it is. Like all these messages that we're receiving, th- there are some implicit and explicit, right? So it, they, the, the, it might have been said, oh, don't bring home American boys, but it was understood that you really meant Black American boys and how we internalize that. I like to call our attention to the implicit messages too, because we tend to think about what are the explicit experiences? What are the explicit messages? And we don't think about those things, right? And so similarly in my household, we had, there weren't a whole lot of messages, but it, even if it's if it's five messages, but all five, 100% of those messages are all negative, they land somewhere they, you know? And so I, because I remember, you know, it was a big insult to be called a Yankee, like, oh, you behaving like a Yankee. Oh, look at this Yankee. You know what I mean? Like, and it was a rejection too. Like, you're not, you're not like us, you're not Trinidadian. And, and in that whole thing is this higher estimation of whatever. Right. And so it wasn't always about race, but somewhere in here, and I feel like it, it is about race. And then, because the only reason why I say it wasn't always, because it was also like that about white people too. You know what I mean? Like that was a statement that was specific to all of Americans. But then there was, I remember specifically, we used to have a lot of work done in the house. Like, so the bathroom is getting um, retiled or the kitchen is getting so different things. And I remember specifically, being said, my grandmother saying like, when, you know, when you, well, I heard her actually, she wasn't talking to me. You can't hire black people to do work. They're so lazy. It'll take them, you know, you know, so long, but you hire a white man, they'll come in, they'll do it X, Y, and Z quick, quickly. You know what I mean? And so, but I, I remember always like rejecting, thankfully, because, and, and I think that had to do with the fact that I was developing a dual identity. And I definitely consider myself both African-American and Trinidadian American. If you ask which one I have more of emotional attachment to, it would be Trinidadian American because of the surrounds of my, you know, like the music does something to me, the food does something to me that's separate and apart from an African American experience that I don't totally know. Right. And, but I remember like asking, like, like, cause it was weird to me. I'm like, but ain't we, aren't we black? Like, how could, like, what, what, like, you're black, I'm black. Like, we, like, how could we be saying these things? Hmm? It's almost like you're asking, what's this distinction? What is this distinction, right? So, so all of these, I think, integral to our healing is us bringing to, to our awareness, like, so we can't heal what we don't reveal, right? So bringing to our awareness these messages that we have, like, internalized and really started to think 
about our place in society. Oh, and then there was another thought about when you were speaking about like this, these racial hierarchies and the lateral aggression, right? And so there's a normalcy to us and them, right? So we, we, we want to feel a sense of belonging. So I might gravitate to people, not I might, I will gravitate to people who I feel more like a shared sense of identity, no matter what that is. If it's, if it's, you know, even if we're talking gender, if it's a room with 30 men, and six women, I'm probably going to walk over to the women, right? So there's a natural us versus them. And what happens is that we flatten the experience of them. Like we think, we think of ourselves in the us category as so diverse and all these kinds of things, but them, we flatten their experience. They're all the same, different things like that. So there's a natural component to categorizing and distancing ourselves from groups that we consider other, but there's lateral aggression too, right? And so it's one of the master's tools, right? So I'm not like you because, you know, because you're a Black American or you're a Nigerian or you're, I'm not like, or you're a Ghanaian if I'm Nigerian. I'm not like you, but that's a tool of the master, right? So it's a, it's horizontal, also called horizontal aggression. And that replicates, that keeps oppression in place, that racial oppression in place. And I think that that's something that we need to to even think about within group messages that we've received, as well as larger societal white mainstream messages that we've received about who we are and who other people of color are so that we could be able to begin to heal and and investigate, undo, do something different in um, future generations. Nerissa, how are we doing on time? Because part of this one question I want to ask, and then I want to make make sure you tell the story about like when we think about our children. How are we doing on time right now? Just about three minutes, thirty-five minutes. To 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 end. Yeah, to end. So you can ask, and and I and I'll I'll try to make it as succinct as possible. Earlier, you mentioned that there are four different kinds of like racial socialization. Can you say more about that? Yes, there are. I don't know why they're the specific names are escaping me right now, but there are four different types of racial socialization message. One of them is egalitarianism everybody's the same, race doesn't matter, any of those things. That usually results in higher rates of anxiety and you know depression and different things like that because there's no preparation for the racist things that the person that, that that child might receive in society. Then there's preparation for bias. That also has a higher result in a higher rate of, of anxiety and depression because if we're preparing our children like not to trust anything in anybody, and they're always hypervigilant and on, you know, on alert and different things like that and not trusting anybody, that's also going to result in, in a higher rate of anxiety or depression. The other two messages, the names escape me, but you can Google racial kinds of racial social or types of racial socialization messages. The other two are ones that let you know the reality of the situation. Listen, you are, you know, you're a black person in this context, and this context is racist, and they're going to tell you this about you. But what you have to know is that this is the truth, right? So that serve, and then messages about pride, like cultural pride, racial pride, all these sort of things. Those two messages serve as a buffer. So when those things come against that child, they don't, they don't internalize it. Because what you would do is internalize it and say, well, it is me. I am less than, and it's because I and people in my group are like that, whether this is a conscious or an unconscious thought, then, you know, we're inferior, right? And so when you, when you have the other kinds of messages that are like racial pride and all those kinds of things, you can buffer against it and say, no, this is a racist system and I'm okay. You know what I mean? And, and you have something to prepare you when, you, when those things happen. 
Oh, wait, where's the fourth one? Though? I Well, one is called, I can't remember the name. I should probably just Google it. But one is, uh, it was cultural pride. And then the other one, I forget the specific uh, name. One about like, just talking about cultural pride is distinct from the one that sort of shares the reality. It's not, they're not together. Exactly. But, but, but what we, I mean, like given like what we'd be encouraging people is doing both. Yeah. Yeah. And and, I, and, go ahead. No, encouraging people. One, you feeling proud about who they are. This is who you are as a black person. This is who you come from. Right. And so that means current, you know, examples within our society, but that also means before the Mayflower, you know what I mean? That also means going back to ancient Egyptian civilizations and all of those kinds of things. So, and it, and it, and it strengthens them. So, so one is messages of emphasizing pride in being black Two, warnings about racial inequalities, three messages that de-emphasize the importance of race. That was the egalitarian messages Four is mistrust of other ethnic groups five is silence about race and racial issues, right? So this looks like this has been, oh, this was since 2015. I'm, I Googled it real quick. But, but yeah, you can continue to do your research because, you know, the intent here is to stimulate your thinking in our conversations. But yeah. Yeah, because the, the story that I want to invite you to tell then is, is one that actually does the both, right? Of this mm-hmm. preparation plus the like uh, Black Pride piece. So we tell, the, tell the, our listeners that story you told me earlier? Sure, sure, sure. So there was, so my son, when he first, right in that, when you, when they say that you're so, uh, that people, that you start becoming aware of themselves as a racialized being, we were in, and he was about three going on four in CVS. And he, he started pointing at this man. He was like, is he white? Mommy, is he white? And I was like, no, he was loud too. Right. And I was like, no, no. And then he pointed to somebody else. Not, I'm sorry. Is he blue is what he said. Is he blue? And then he pointed to somebody else who was also white. And he was like, is he blue? And I said, no, I said, um, I said, he's white. So now I pull him aside. I have to have you invite me to this conversation. I'm going to go ahead and take it all the way. Right. And so I said, I said, he's white. I said, I said, there are different races of people. You know, I mean, I knew that this was over his head, but I'm laying a foundation. Right. There are different races of people. There are white people. There are black people. There are Asian people. You know, there are varied kinds of people. And in reality, there's no difference between us. We just look different, but we are the same. I said, but in this country, they will give you negative messages about Black people. You know what I mean? So the truth of the matter is, though, that Black is beautiful. Black is beautiful, right? And so I'm instill- instilling cultural pride in him. But also, I-, I began instilling cultural pride before he was born because his name is Ty. And Ty- I wanted him to have an African name. And I wanted it to be something some th- people wouldn't butcher. And so Ty is Swahili for eagle, right? And so he knows this. He carries this with him. Like, Eagle soars above the rest, right? That's also part of his racial and ethnic socialization that 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 carries him, right? But so the funny part of this story is that a year later, he's in kindergarten, and where we live, it was a racially diverse neighborhood. But we were his school was only like I think it was like eight percent black, and it was a very small number. And at our bus stop, we were the only black people. It was like thirty kids, mostly Eastern European, and some Asian and some South American. Spanish speaking cultures. Right. And so I see him who's normally like quiet, but I see him like he's slapping his hand and he's telling a story and I'm looking over at him like, what is he talking about? Right. But I'm not going to interrupt. He's having a kindergarten level conversation, but he turns around and he was like, right, mommy, right, mommy. And I was like, what? Right. You said black is better than everything. You said black is better than everything. Right. So parents, everybody is around. And I'm like, 
no, 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 no. That's not, I didn't, I said black was beautiful. That's I said, but we had an opportunity to revise this message and to go ahead, go ahead, you know, after school and really think about, well, really reaffirm what it was that I was saying was that black is beautiful, which does not mean that anything else is less than, but it means don't let anybody tell you that. But you was feeling your energy when you said it. Because you, <laughs> you said, and the like. <laughs> he was hardcore too. It was like, it's still like so funny to me to picture him. He was like, you know, he was bringing his point home. Like, right, mommy? Right, go ahead and tell him. Go ahead and tell him. Like, <laughs> but, um, but I had the opportunity to revise the message. It's still, I mean, I told the earlier story about how he was in school. They were prejudicial experiences of him and and beliefs about him but so, so it didn't prevent it from ever happening but he did have he he had somewhat of a buffer as well as as when those things happen i had conversations with him about why might they have a, a lesser opinion of you and different things like that so yeah so he definitely had an awareness from from earlier on part of what i'm i'm really i'm really looking forward to us talking about in a future episode is this piece around this like buffer and thinking about sort of like the ways that we we now are able to create buffers for our children in a way that I think when our parents, like when you think about like ways that parents, like certainly our parents, like my my parents, like our, genera- our parents' generation, the ways that the buffers that they start try to create, how it also ended up being harmful buffers in the sense of like requiring you like have to overcompensate, all, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, let me give you this information and give you the help you understand the context in which you're operating without then demanding and requiring you to have to perform in ways that are actually um, harmful to you, mm-hmm. right? So it's just this idea. I want this idea around socializing. I just think we just, I want us to talk about this on like a parenting level because um, I think that that's a piece that can be really useful, certainly for our own selves, but also for like folks who are listening. So I know we are way over time, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to us. And we look forward to catching you on our next episode. See you all soon. Till the next time. Thanks for listening. If you've loved what we had to say, please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Dr. Narissa, and you can find me on IG at Dr. Narissa Williams. And I'm Dr. Buki. You can find me on IG at the official Dr. Buki. You can also stay abreast of our latest offerings at our website, RadicalRemembering.com.